This evening's reading from the New Testament is Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, and can be found on page 4 in your bulletin. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one of you according to his works, To those who by patience, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, should we pray together? Sounds like a good idea. I think we need to. God, thank you so much for your desire to speak to us. We thank you that when you uh, made your message known, um, you were not unsure. You were certain and declared it. And we pray that we might draw confidence from your certainty. And these words as we delve into places of the soul. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are studying the book of Romans and uh, looking at it as a study of the power of the gospel. And by gospel, we mean good news. And by good news, we mean the good news of God's grace that he has demonstrated through Jesus Christ his beloved son, who came over 2,000 years ago. And in these first couple chapters, uh, we're really focused on trying to understand sin. I said last week that a grace is only amazing to you if you know that you need it. And that's just simple right there. If right now the grace of God is sort of flat to you, or doesn't mean much to you, where you want to look is your need. And so, 
one of the ways that that gets unpacked in the first couple chapters of Romans is understanding what the Bible calls our sin, our moral failure. There's lots of different definitions we could give to sin. We could say that sin is missing God's standard. We could say that sin is transgressing God's standard or law. Or if we wanted to do it a real simple way, we might say that sin is self-centeredness. We can all relate to that. But another way, I think, to understand sin is spiritual lostness, being spiritually lost. And the Bible tells us that there really are two kinds of lostness. And Jesus makes this plain when he teaches his famous parable of the two sons. You may have heard of this parable of the prodigal son. The first son is lost in rule-breaking. He's a rule breaker. He's, you know, he's a hedonist. He wants his inheritance so he can delve into all his desires and pleasures. And that sort of lostness finds its way in our heart as we think, you know, if I could just do what I wanted, if I could just eat as much as I wanted and have as much money as I wanted and sleep with whoever I want and work as long as I want, if I could just have all that stuff, then I would be happy. My life would be perfect. That's the lostness that chapter 1 described of idolatry, the lostness of rule-breaking. And you can bet that every one of the devout Jewish folk in that congregation in Rome, as they heard Paul going through Romans 1, they would have been nodding their head going, yep, those are those Gentiles. Those are those pagans. You described it well, Paul. And then Paul all of a sudden takes a left turn He takes a left turn that no one's expecting. He says, oh, but there's another kind of lostness. It's a lostness for the the rule keeper, the lostness for the moral righteous person. It's the elder son in the parable, the two sons, and it's who Jesus actually told the parable for. It's that kind of lostness, and that's the lostness that says, if I do everything right, if I find the system, if I make it work and I succeed in this life, and everybody else does what they're supposed to do, life would be wonderful. Life would be successful. It would be perfect. And this sort of lostness can be seen in lots of ways. You know, maybe it's someone that grew up in a religious tradition who thought, if I just follow this religious tradition, everything will work out. Or it may have been the dedicated athlete or dedicated student that said, if I just stick at this, things are going to work out for me. It may have been that person. It may have been the person that came to Washington and invested themselves in a just, noble cause. You know, the person that is like the GoFundMe expert, and they can get all those things happening, and they thought, you know, if I just do that, life will work out. It's a different kind of lostness, and it's actually the one that Paul spends most of his time talking about in sin. And it may have been because... That was his story. That was Paul's story. He was a young achiever. He was lost in the rule keeping until Jesus knocked him off his high horse, literally. Right? Knocked him off his self-righteous horse. And maybe he spends so much time on talking about it because, you know, it may be harder to get saved out of goodness than it is to be saved out of badness. Because, you know, when you're bad, when you're low, you start to get hungry and desperate. But when you're good, 
you don't really see any reason to be saved. And so Paul spends a lot of time saying, I want you to see. And for that, he turns his gaze upon mostly those from his own background. The people of Israel, God's chosen people. And for the next, basically all of chapter 2, that's where he's putting things down. So I want to take the first half of it in understanding sin in this way, understanding self-righteousness. Last week we looked at the idea of idolatry. This week the idea of self-righteousness. And we'll look at two things. The deception of self-righteousness and the judgment of self-righteousness. Okay? So let's start with this deception of self-righteousness. Now, we've all seen characters in movies that we can say, you know, what a great example of self-righteousness. Easy to spot. You know, maybe uh, it's Tony Stark, Iron Man. You know, he always just has to... At one hand you like him, at the other hand he's like, he is such... I'll, I'll, I won't finish the word, you know, a smart, you know what I mean. And, um, and so, or Cusco, right, and the Emperor's New Groove, if you can remember back to that. Or Javert and Les Mis, right, so self-righteous. Or Pride and Prejudice, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, right? These characters that are so easy to see, they're just so self-righteous. But unfortunately, it doesn't appear that way in our own lives. It's not that easy to spot. Now, other people can spot it, but we can't spot it and recognize it. And so, you know, Paul goes through this list at the end of chapter 1, and it has all these terrible things in it that describe what mankind can do. Envy, murder, malice, gossip, spite, you know, all this stuff going on. And you can imagine, again, the, the self-righteous religious person just going, preach it. You're right. I see it every day. I read it in the newspaper. Shaking his head, right? Shaking her head. And then all of a sudden Paul says, you have no excuse because every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And it would have been a pin dropping in that room. What? Say what? We, we practice the same things? And by the way, Paul isn't saying here that we should have no judgment in life. I know it, it's very popular in modern times to say, well, Jesus and Christianity said don't judge people. That's too simplistic. You know, Jesus did call for judgment. Here we're talking about self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. That's what he's talking about. And he often would go after the religious leaders about this because this is something that marked him. He said, you might not mug an elderly person in the street, but what you'll do, you'll find a loophole in the tax code so you don't have to support the elderly. Amen. That's what you'll do. Or he'll say, you know, you, you didn't commit adultery physically, but you found a way on a technicality to get out of your marriage so you can go be with the person you wanted to. This is what he's saying to the religious Pharisees. It's not so apparent to them, right? They're looking at blatant sin, and he's going, you're, you're not seeing what's in your life. And I think that, right, the same is true with us. Uh, I was reading a bit this week on, you know, how do you know if you're self-righteous? Because I just have no clue if I am, you know. I just have no clue if I'm self-righteous, and so I needed help. Uh, anyway, you know, maybe some of these ring true. Uh, you're more accepting of others if you know you're better than they are. If someone tells you something you already know, at some point you have to say, I knew that, you know. Um, you're upset when people don't meet your unexpressed needs. You yell at your kids to stop yelling, right? 
That's an easy one. Stop yelling! Stop being so intense! Or you complain that you're so sick of people that complain, right? Uh, I, was, I, I was doing a little searching, and I, I came upon this article that said uh, extremely self-righteous people. You know, it was this blog on extremely self-righteous people. And then it said, this is part of an ongoing series entitled Annoying People. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting, right? Um, or it may be in the demands that you and I have. You know, I must be listened to. People must not interrupt me. People must not question my expertise, the area of expertise that I have. People must not criticize my driving. People must not park in a way where they leave just enough space where another car couldn't get in there, right? And so you, you could fit five more cars on the block. But, sorry about that. So, <laughs> anyway, or, you know, self-righteous about uh, the way you put the toilet paper on. I went for years and years until someone said, no, you ought to put it this way, not so it comes under, but so the flap is over. And now when that's not done, I'm like, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> now you're probably going, I do it the other way, Glenn. See, this is the sort of stuff I'm talking about here. We're just one big self-righteous lot. And we see it in our anger. Uh, think about this, this occurred to me. Basically, every time that you and I are wrongly angry, and I've said before, you can be righteously angry, but every time we're wrongly angered, unrighteous anger, the thing that is underneath it is self-righteousness all the time. Self-righteousness is what triggers wrong anger. That's how prevalent it is in our lives. And I think, you know, especially during an election year, we need to be careful, especially this election year. Because, you know, I've noticed that folks have, um, you know, folks, me and folks, <laughs> there's, if there's this feel like, you know, there's, we have a license this year to gripe and complain. Whatever candidate you're for, but there's this idea that, you know, things that we really have a right to be judgmental and self-righteous. And here I'm not saying we should be blind to people's faults. But you find the book of Galatians saying this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so self-righteousness is lurking in our lives at all different places. But, you know, it's one thing to see the symptoms. I can list these things and we can laugh at them together, but knowing what causes it is a different thing, and that's the help this passage gives us. This is what help the passage gives us. Let me read verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So two things that help promote self-righteousness so we can begin to see its deception. One is presuming on the riches of God's kindness. That's the first one, presuming on the riches of God's kindness. And I think that has two things it splits into. One is having a false sense of righteousness from God's blessings getting a false sense of righteousness from God's blessings. Imagine this. Imagine you have a friend or a boss that has this really great car. Maybe it's a Porsche. Maybe it's Ferrari, whatever it is. And the place you're staying happens to have a garage, and you've got an open space, and he's got to go out of town for two months and says, listen, I'd rather have the car in someone's possession, so would you take the car? 
for me? And you're like, sure, I'll take it. You know, and at first, uh, when people come over for the first month, you're like, yeah, this is my boss's car. It's an amazing car, isn't it great? And then maybe at some point, as it's been in your possession longer and longer, someone comes over and says, nice car, and you just leave out that part. It's the boss's. And you just kind of go, yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's a great car. I mean, you, 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 how long have you had it? Well, a couple months. I've had it a couple months. You know, and then maybe you've taken it out driving, and you're running some friends, and they go, whose car is this? And you just kind of go, so what are you doing today? You know, you just grip over there. You go to a stoplight, and someone looks at it, and you give them the nod, you know, the thing that, look at my car. Somehow along the road, the longer that thing was in your possession, you began to think it was yours. You know, you began to think, hey, this belongs to me, and I'm responsible for it. Well, you take the Jewish people, Israel. God had loaded them down with an incredible package. I mean, first of all, they were nationally elected by God. They were to be the first people on earth that he reached out to, and then they would reach out to the nation. He enters into a life and love bond with them. It's called a covenant. And he gives them a sign. He marks them out. I mentioned earlier being marked out with a sign. He marks them out to say, I have my favor upon you. He gives them extravagant promises. He does amazing things in defeating their enemies. He liberates from them from bondage. All those things he did for them. Maybe if you're someone that grew up in the church, you know, it would be you grew up and, you know, you're a Christian and you have all these benefits in your life. We'll get to that in a second. But he's done all these things, and what they begin to think, though, is this. They begin to think, well, there must have been a reason why he gave these things to us. Even though in Deuteronomy 7 he said, I want you to know when I chose you it had nothing to do with your righteousness. And they begin to think, well, you know something? There's got to be a reason why this stuff is in my life. Just like a Christian can take their benefits, maybe it's the benefit of growing up in the church or the good theology they were given or the opportunity for service or the gifts they have or whatever it is. It's strange how this happens, but God's kindness, we have possession of it and we move from a steward to an owner. And we move from merit, mercy to merit, rather. And we have this idea, it's where we arrive to this place in our lives. And maybe it's, you know, you got the job you want, or you got the marriage you want, or your kids are doing really well, whatever it is, you got your life, you, you achieve the weight that you want, whatever it is, and we get there, and we forgot about all the stuff that made it possible for us to get there. And we begin to own it and become self-righteous. The blessings of God will either make you bow your head or lift your head. You know, they will either make you bow your head and go, how could I have this? Or you'll begin to lift your head in pride. It's just the way it works. They begin to turn into unrighteousness. But there's another part of this we've got to look at, and that it'll get a false, not a false sense of righteousness, but a false sense of security or immunity. False sense of security or immunity. I was watching this TV show um, about a month ago, and it was one of these cop shows, and in the show, there was a son of a, um, you know, a foreign ambassador committed a terrible crime. But, you know, he, he sort of taunts the cops when they come after him. He goes, listen, you can't touch me. I've got immunity. You know, my dad, I'm connected to my dad. I've got immunity. You can't do anything with me. Well, as the story goes on and on, his dad learns the story and different he feels like he needs to be dutiful to what he's doing, so he basically removes the immunity from his son, and, you know, he gets busted. I think sometimes those of us that are in faith, professing Christians, 
we live long enough in God's grace and we begin to believe that we're immune from his judgment. Now, here I'm not talking about ultimate judgment, but we begin to believe that we're immune. We, we, we sort of use God's promises as fire insurance against him. In a sense, we use the blessings and, and we put them around us in such a way where we think, you know, God is not going to touch me like he would touch other people, this pagan over there. It's not doing anything right. And we can actually begin to think that our sin looks differently to God. I've seen this in my own heart. You know, it's sort of like um, a parent. Imagine a parent comes over and they got a couple kids that are just going crazy in your house. You know, they're like swearing up a storm. They're drawing on your living room wall. And the dad sees all that and goes, ha, ah, that Billy, he loves his art, loves to do his art. You know, or that Billy, oh, he's got his tongue on him, right? Just kind of chuckles and pats him on the head. That we sort of have this idea that, you know, when the world does its thing, God is really offended. But when we do our thing, he sort of smiles and pats us on our head. And that he's not offended. But here we're told there's no partiality. And so we end up using the grace of God to compromise his righteousness, compromise his holiness. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian here, and I'm including myself here, if you're a Christian here, you have to know that God hates your sin. Even while you're a Christian, he hates your sin. And that the Holy Spirit grieves every time we sin. He grieves over it. And that our sin was so great that nothing short of handing over his beloved righteous son could deal with the wrath the just righteous judgment that we deserved. And so the cross ought to be this place. The cross is not just the demonstration of God's grace and love. It's also the demonstration of his holiness. Why Jesus had to be perse you know, persecuted and crucified. And Paul is having to say to these people that have been around, and it's just too easy to save the Israelites of that day. Well, they were just work salvation oriented. They just believed you could save yourself by your works. Listen, they had understanding of grace. The Pharisees had understanding of grace. They just believed we were elected by grace. We were given all these benefits of grace. We were given all these things in the covenant, and it dulled them to their own unrighteousness. They became blind to it. But one last thing before I move on to the last point, and that is not only presuming on God's kindness, but presuming in God's patience. I, I notice that, I think this is true, that if, if you have a meeting with someone you think is really important or impressive, you won't be late. But if you have a meeting with someone that you're like, eh, you feel free to be late. Does anybody else do that? Maybe it's just you and me, okay? Right? This idea that if it's someone we really fear and impress, uh, for, you know, we'll be like, I I'm going to get right on this. If not, we go, ah, you know, I can take my time. Well, I think the same thing sort of happens where... With God, the longer we're walking with his patience, we tend to think, you know, I'll repent about that sin later. You know, I, I'll get to that later. Maybe at the end of my life, maybe when I turn 40. You know, it, just like the other, other presumption of God's grace would lead us to say, I'm not that bad, this would say it hasn't been that long. And we presume upon the great patience of God in our lives. 
And so we have these little things we do, and we get into this cycle where we start to go, well, it's, it's a little thing, and that little thing goes on for 10 years. And you know something? When you do a little thing for 10 years, it doesn't say a little thing. And when it goes on that long, it's now a big thing. You know, it's sort of like a marriage where it's like, well, we just have this little communication problem, little communication, then 15 years later, it's over. What happened? A little thing became really big. And so the patience of God is something we think about. And Paul says these two things, the presumption of his kindness and his patience, are heart issues. It's ultimately a heart issue. And what do you deal with that? We got the key here when he talks about the kindness and patience of God leads us to repent. If you and I are pushing deeper and deeper into God's kindness, of his love for us, of his great patience, if you and I, I mean, I am, you know, decades old. Let's just say that. Decades old. And I'm just starting to see things in my life that God has been patient with for decades. Decades. This ugliness, this pride. And the response of it, I know sometimes, is to want to go, ugh, but he pulls us close to him. And he goes, yeah, and I've loved you all the way through it. Even before you knew that, I loved you. Even before you even cared about it, I loved you. Even before you even knew you wanted to repent of it, I forgave it. So his kindness and patience drive us on in our repentance. All right, let me move to the last point, not as long, and then we'll wrap it up. What about the judgment? Listen, I know these are tough chapters. These are tough chapters to go through, but, you know, we gotta, we got to feel our need. we got to go through the bad news to get to the good news. You know, we got to do that. So if you're the first time visiting here and you're like, oh, man, you know, we're just trying to be faithful to the text. God wounds to heal. And so judgment upon sin. So both Paul says the rule breaker and the rule keeper both don't have excuse. Both of them don't have any excuse. And he, he brings up this sort of hypothetical about the Gentiles, the pagans, because they didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the law. And he said, you can imagine someone saying, well, why should they be judged because of that? And he says, because everybody's got the moral law written in their conscience. You know, when someone goes into a mall and blows a bunch of people away with a shotgun, or a bunch of guys sexually assault a woman that's half awake, you and, I don't have, you and I don't get mad because the law was broken. We get mad because that's wicked. Intuitively, I, you, whether you're a religious person or not, I know when you read that stuff, you're like, <laughs> maybe when you were a kid, you know, you use the excuse with your parents sometimes, but I didn't know, and they'll say, well, you should have known better. Because there are things that we should have known, we all should have known better. We just should have. Our hearts get hardened, though. We don't see it. So Paul says everybody's without excuse. He's going, if you're a non-religious person here, you're without excuse. If you're a religious person, you actually are more without excuse. He'll say they'll be judged more critically because you have God's words and God's laws. And then he says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Then skipping to verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now at this point, if you know anything about the Christian gospel, you ought to start feeling nervous. Because you're going to go, wait a second, this sounds like work salvation stuff. I mean, it's like Paul forgotten the gospel he was famous for preaching. 
What's this stuff about like you'll be justified? Justified means to be declared righteous by your deeds. Or those that obey will get this and that. Well, we have to, number one, typical Bible principle, you read the Bible in light of the Bible. You know, you read one passage in light of what it says elsewhere. You don't go to one part in a book and read one chapter and go, this is what the book's about. And so, is it likely that Paul forgot what he said in chapter 1 and what he'll say again in chapter 3 and what he says all through the book of Romans? No. So we then have to take another option. What does he mean by justified? And it's in the future tense, justified. Now, there are three different, basically, slants on this, and I'll go through them quickly. One is this, this idea of future justification, okay? And I said justification means to be declared righteous. The first one is this, the view that our obedience plays into our justification, that basically your obedience to God completes your portfolio of righteousness before God. That's one view. It's the view that uh, God gives us grace to cooperate with Jesus to achieve our standing before God. That's a view that Catholic uh, theology tends to emphasize, people like N.T. Wright. But the problem with that view is it is, so, um, it is so refuted all throughout the talking of the gospel. I mean, as we go through the book of Romans, Paul will go on and on and say people are justified by their faith. That's it, the book of Ephesians. You are saved by grace apart from works. Nothing to do with works. Or the book of Hebrews that says Jesus can, can save completely those that turn to him. So it can't be that. It ends up being basically every other religion. But the grace of the gospel had something else. So that leads us to two other views. And let me say there are good theologians, and if you understand what reformed means, good reformed theologians that have both of these views. The one is a hypothetical view. You heard in this text Paul saying, oh man, oh man, he's not like from the 1960s, you know. What he's doing there is it's sort of like he's having an argument with a hypothetical objective. And so this view is saying that Paul is basically saying, while one could be justified by doing the law in theory, in actuality, in practice, it's impossible to. So he's saying, yeah, if you could do the law all the way and obey all the way, you would be justified, but the truth is none of us can do it. And in chapter 3, he's going to hammer it. No one is righteous. So third, that's that, that's that second view. Here's the third view that I think is the strongest view, because you know the third view is always the one the speaker is going to go is the right view. I was going to do the first one just to throw mess around with you, but then I thought, I'll just confuse you, right? So the, the future view is this that the future justification is the same as future vindication. Future justification is the same as future vindication. Let me unpack that. That our obedience to God and our good works to God don't merit our justification, but they testify to it. They testify to it. Basically, they're the evidence of living faith. And so as God works in someone's heart with his free grace and his righteousness and justifies them, they become alive spiritually. And this is what the book of Ephesians says. You're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. But then it says, then God gave his good works before, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. So it's this idea that basically when believers stand on the judgment day, 
God will look at their good works and their righteousness and say, this is a justified woman. And this, this is a justified man. And this is consistent with the book of James that says, faith without deeds is dead. So I think that's the better option. But here's the bottom line to wrap it up. No one is justified. The message here is no one will be justified by their own righteousness. You might be here a non-religious person, and what you need to look at is how am I using whatever I'm dedicated to really as a means of acceptance before the world and acceptance maybe before God if there is one. You know, do I think when I stand before him, he's going to go, well, you know, you really were a pretty good sister, and I remember you helped that cause in Washington. Is that what you're banking on? Do you think that'll justify you? And if you're a religious person, we'll get to this in a second. Where is your righteousness? And, I, and I, this leads to a critical distinction in the Christian faith, okay? This is really the hinge it turns on. And I'm going to ask you to turn to that quote on the first page of your bulletin. I'm going to read it to you. It comes from Tim Keller, and I think he says it so well. He says this. It's on the you know, front page under reflection. The irreligious, the irreligious, non-religious people don't repent at all. They're not concerned to repent at all. The religious only repent of their sins, but Christians also repent of their righteousness. Moral and religious people are sorry for their sins, but they see sins as simply the failure to live up to standards by which they are saving themselves. They may go to Jesus for forgiveness, but only as a way to cover up the gaps in their project of self-salvation. But a Christian is someone who has adopted a whole new system of approach to God. They realize their entire reason for either religion or irreligion has been essentially the same thing and essentially wrong. Christians realize that both their sins and their best deeds have already been ways of avoiding Jesus as Savior. Ouch. You hear what he's saying there? It could be that your MO for all these years has been my obedience and my approach to God is really trying to stay righteous enough so I won't have to really need him as a Savior. I won't have to really rely on him. And Paul is saying the distinctive between Christians is this. They repent of their righteousness. They, will, they lay down their deadly doing, so to speak. The fig leaves of righteousness from the Garden of Eden, they throw off. And they stand before God naked, only clothed in his righteousness. This is what he's saying. And it's not that you stop caring about righteousness, you just stop relying upon it. And this is the whole trick and beauty of it. Then your deeds actually become righteous for the first time. Because you know if you're doing righteous, if you're doing something to be justified, you're doing it to be self-centered. If you're doing it to make a mark, you're doing it to be self-centered. You know, even these things we say, well, you know, I've lived how I wanted, it's now time to give back. Mm, you got to think about that. Or why are you so devoted to this cause? Your deeds actually become righteousness when you stop using them to become righteous. Then you can do them for love. You're no longer trying to prove yourself. You're doing them for the sake of love. And that's when the kingdom of God really catches on fire. That's when things really take off. That's when we can move into the city and we don't go from some high self-righteous savior place but we come low. And you say, let me tell you about the story of an unrighteous person who God loved. That becomes attractive. So, this is where we go with understanding self-righteousness. Let me close this in prayer.
Thank you for this gospel, God. Thank you for how you reveal us to cover us. We pray this week as we see our own self-righteousness, we wouldn't be defensive. We wouldn't uh, stay up all night to try to make it right. We pray we would flee to our Savior. We pray we would find grace and righteousness through the one who did obey the law, the only one who did bring salvation by works, Jesus Christ. Amen.